Today's podcast is brought to you in part by Paceler AG, the makers of PRTG Network Monitor. PRTG monitors your whole IT infrastructure 24 by 7 and alerts you to problems before users even notice. Find out more about the monitoring software that helps system administrators work smarter, faster, and better by visiting Paceler.com today or just Google PRTG. Welcome to Packet Pushes, the never-ending story about data networking. In the 10 or so years that I've been blogging, Ivan Pepelniak has been a constant figure. His prolific blogging and sharing of knowledge was one of the inspirations for my own entry into blogging. And over the years, we've usually agreed violently on most things and disagreed on just a few others. His ipspace.net website has grown from a blog into a membership system and more recently into a consulting service. As you know, he's been around forever. So welcome to the show, Mr. Ivan Pepunyak. Thanks for having me. Ah, it's, it's been so long since we spoke to each other. It really feels like we used to see each other all the time. And then over the last, what, three or four years, we just stopped cons- like uh, seeing each other at the same places and stuff in person? Well, yeah, and we were both busy, which is supposedly a sweet problem to have. <laughs> I'd rather not be most of the time, to be fair. Being, being relaxed and at home in my underpants is, is much more fun. I'm not going down that path. <laughs> so I but thought what right we... Right now, I mean, this what has been heard cannot be unheard. <laughs> well, they're virtual underpants. They're not real. They're just imaginary. Okay. Like It's like a good... V- like, like a container. Kind of like a... <laughs> so I, I just wanted to, the two of us to get together and have a chat about the state of the industry. It was kind of my idea. Like you and I... Sometimes we have violent agreements, which means we actually agree, but from two different points of view. And then sometimes we disagree gently, nicely. And I wanted to just talk about some general ideas about where you and I go, because I think a lot of people respect yours opinions, and uh, I think that they should be heard. So uh, have, have you got something that you want to particularly to talk about? Oh, automation, intent, yeah. the usual stuff. <laughs> Put together a number of things. Let's start there. Okay. Well, let's start off with automation. I, I let me just throw down a, a straw man, and then let's uh, let's take some shots at it. So, my view on automation is it's all well and good to you know hack together some Python and you know grab some Ansible and and do your things, but I think ultimately we're going to see SDM platforms fill most of that gap up. So that is, you're much more likely to buy something off the shelf. And in the in, like NSX, like ACI, like SD WAN, like ONAP, like Open Daylight, whatever it is, and there's so many of them, they're going to do eighty percent of the work, and then maybe there's twenty percent you could do with code. Do you still think people are going to write it code, or they're going to use platforms? Well, it really depends on how you want to run your infrastructure, because. All these platforms you mentioned, they just add a layer of abstraction. They don't solve anything. Mm. You see, the the, the real problem is uh, how consistent and how repeatable do you want your operations to be? So do you want to make sure that you're doing the same thing every time you deploy something, whatever that something is, doesn't matter? Mm. Or are you willing to clickety-click your way through a GUI or quality call your way through an API. So if you want to be consistent, if you want to have, you know, manufacturing got there uh, decades ago, if not centuries, they figured out that uh, only if you can make things repeatable and consistent will you have some quality. Mm. And uh, inserting a layer of abstraction doesn't give you consistency or repeatability because in the end, 
someone is still clicking the UI. I guess I would say that people made machines. So if you think about making, uh, I'll use car metaphors because I still think it's a pretty good car metaphor. If you think about the bodywork, stamping out a piece of steel, those machines have become, they originally started off as like one machine would stamp the plate flat and then another machine would curve it and then another machine would do that. And nowadays they have machines that do the whole thing, do all of the different production steps in a single machine. So automation moves through automate a piece of it, automate a piece of it, automate a piece of it, and then eventually you orchestrate a whole bunch of pieces with one big machine. And that's what I think SDN controllers are like is instead of having a machine that just does some some extrusion and then another one that does some bending and another one that does a different type of bending, you just have a machine that does the whole thing for you instead of piece by piece. Yeah, you still have to have some way to consistently order a car from the machine. Yeah. So how do you do that if you want to do it consistently? You have to automate that part as well. Yeah, I think there's always room to automate on top of an SDN controller. And some people will want to do that. I don't know, though. I I think, you know, we've been able to automate networking devices at a very poor level, like not very well, you know, Tickle and Pearl, for example, for years. Oh, don't get me started. No. I mean, but nobody really got into it now, partly because the quality of that execution was poor, but also because it just wasn't very useful. So I do think sometimes I look at Python and Ansible and what people are doing there and thinking, does that really scale to like every all of the networks in the world? Oh, well, first, don't I don't think that we'll ever solve every problem in the world with the same solution. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, and there will be people, well, there are people that don't need anything today. I mean, the small businesses, what do you need? A one, you need a, a pair wireless of 48, access point. Yeah. Yeah, a 48-port, 48, 48 1-gig switch. So there are plenty, plenty. Well, maybe not even that. Maybe you just need an access point and everything else is in the cloud. So who cares? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't care about those people. On the other hand, there are people who build data centers with a million servers. I don't care about those because, uh, you know, they don't need us. Yep. They know what they're or they would be out of business. But in the middle, there are people cannot avoid the fact that someone else thinks that their infrastructure is unique. And those people can't use an off-the-shelf thingy unless they modify the off-the-shelf thingy or they have to build their own. And for them, it's really important that they wrap their head around the idea that uh, automation brings repeatability. And honestly, I don't care if you automate with Ansible or with Python or with API calls to NSX or ACI, Mm. as long as you are ensuring that what you do is consistent. Yeah, every time you pull the lever, it does the same thing. Yeah. By the way, talking about uh, SDN and consistency, Mm. Two examples from my automation course. Someone, well, you know, in the second week, they have to do something simple, like grab some information, produce a report. Mm -hmm. And one of the attendees said, well, what I will do is I will actually use ACI and uh, the ACI Ansible modules because they exist. Otherwise, he would just do uh, API calls. And I will gather all the information about a tenant together and put that into an Excel spreadsheet. I was like, what? (laughs) And he said, you know what? There is absolutely no other way to figure out all the settings of a tenant in ACI. 
So how do you ensure that every tenant has this one weird setting set to the right value? You have to pull the information out. You have to generate a report because ACI is not giving you that or NSX or any other SDM platform. And he said, oh, and by the way, Excel is this nice querying tool that everyone can use. So, you know, if I give them an Excel, they will be able to generate the reports themselves. So is that, do you think that's a, a structural flaw with SDN or do you think that vendors haven't matured their solutions? Like, are we still in, I think, to a large extent, we're still at the beta phase of SDN to a, to a lesser or greater extent. Well, it's the structural fault of the mental model. Mm. You see, uh, people who know what they're doing talk about infrastructure as code, which means you define how you want your infrastructure to look like in a text file, and then you have some automation tool, and it doesn't matter what it is. Uh, it can be Terraform, it can be Cloudify, it can be CloudFormation, it can be Vagrant, it can be whatever, I don't care that takes this text file and instantiates the infrastructure. Networking, VMs, uh, load balancers, firewalls, virtual disks, you name it. You want to change how your application infrastructure looks like. You change the text file, you run the same tool again, the tool finds the differences and uh, does all the API magic to you know, instantiate the differences. Mm -hmm. You always know how your infrastructure looks like because it's defined in the text file. And guess what? You can put that text file under version control so you can track the changes. At the same time, the text file has to go through a CLI program to be translated into internal well, device state. It can be a YAML file if yeah. you wish, so it can be parsed with a YAML parser mm. or whatever mm. it is. Right. You see, the, the problem is that we as humans have mastered the art of reading text through the last 5,000 years. Mm. And uh, two texts are easily comparable and it's easy to see the differences. How will you do that with an API-driven thinking? So that means that the vendor then needs to either present you with all the possible choices that you need to have, that you want, that you, you know, the, the use cases that you have, or you have to be able to poll, and then you have to present the data via the API into a format that you can use. Well, yes, for example. Hmm. You see, there's been this uh, ACM article written by sysadmins a decade ago or so, and it was a plea to the software vendors. So, dear software vendors, this is what we as sysadmins need to get our job done. And one of the requirements was, give me a text configuration because I can put it under version control. And SDN vendors still haven't grasped that idea. So would then SDN platforms, you're saying then that an SDN platform should be able to produce a rote text output of its current state, current configuration, yes. so that you have something on which to base, well, configuration state? What if it was internally able to roll back to a known state? Would you trust that? Uh, how many times yeah. uh, did you get a call in the middle of the night yeah. saying the network is down and you said, well, what has changed? And everyone said nothing. <laughs> and you had to diff the configurations to figure out that actually someone did change something. Again, I think what, uh, and I think that's disappointing that vendors, that we don't trust our vendors. It's a disappointment that vendors. No, it's not the vendors. It's yeah. that someone did something. Mm maybe even bypassing whatever official processes because he was in a hurry. 
And now, yes, rollback is a nice thingy, but are you brave enough to do a rollback if you don't know why the changes were made? Do you want to, though? At some point, networking is disappearing. Like if I go and look at what Nutanix is doing on their platforms around hyperconvergence or Cisco Hyperflex or uh, Dell's VxRail, Dell slash VMware's VxRail, VxRack solutions, I don't get to choose the networking that's in there. I don't even get... I go and buy a hyperconvergence platform that gives me containers, VMs, storage, servers. It all comes in a in a black box, a bit like a mainframe hyperconvergence looks like to me. And you get the networking that's with it. And and that's you know, we're not gonna get what we do today, which is our own self-assembly, you know, buy bits and pieces of the Lego blocks and try and make them all fit together into a working solution. I I can't help but wonder if those days of self-assembly are, are passing us by. Well, passing a large percentage of the market by? Well, I hope that we'll finally get to a point where we won't be urged to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, this really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have to manage one box or 10 boxes or 1,000 boxes. What matters is the process you use to manage them. And if you can't see the state of a tenant or the whole system or uh, an application stack or whatever it is, at a glance, your job is harder than if you could. And if you can't take a recipe and deploy it a thousand times and get consistent results a thousand times, how will you deploy consistent application stacks? Mm. doesn't matter if it's on vSAN and NSX and whatever, or if it's, you know, uh, OpenStack or if it's a thousand switches. A Cisco UCS, DNA, yeah. networking, whatever. like Hyperflex. I don't think Hyperflex even uses ACI, to my knowledge. Yeah. I could be wrong. Uh, same thing. Mm. Uh, by the way, the only vendor I've seen so far they, that got it uh, is uh, Tail F, which is now Cisco NSO, right? Mm-hmm. They understood that. So... If I'm not totally mistaken, you can do show running and get the configuration of their system. Well, you can get what passes out of their, I think all of their backends stored in XML or in some sort of internal database. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, they, they give pass you it. a high level, yeah. they give you the state of the system at the abstraction layer you want to deal with. But you get, you know, state in one blob. You don't have to click your way through 10 UI screens. Yeah, I think that, do you think, one of the things that I saw, I was um, fortunate enough to attend a network field day in January, and the Cisco team that's working around the software-defined access, the campus stuff, was showing, um, and this isn't an endorsement of software-defined access, but they were demonstrating that they'd actually spent a lot of time and energy working on the user interface and thinking carefully about the user design and the user interaction. Instead of like relying on an engineer to come up with some sort of interface that's logical and coherent, Cisco was trying to tell us that they're actually investing in the user interface and the user experience instead of just letting some engineer do do their best effort. Uh, I think I've seen that same product two weeks after you did during Cisco Live Europe. Yep. And my initial cynical comment was, oh, so you finally got Cisco Works to look right. <laughs> I love what they did. They could have done that uh, 20 years ago. Wouldn't be a minute too soon. Mm -hmm. It took them 20 years. Okay, I understand all that. 
they have these great ideas how uh, they would give you everything about a user, the devices, where they are connected, path from devices to wherever. So, you know, you remember that discussion with, who was it, uh, Derek Winkworth? Mm-hmm. And the dark broccoli forest of despair. Yes. <laughs> so what they did uh, would shine some rainbow into his dark forest on the path to the unicorn land. Yeah. But from from the network or from the service management perspective, that's awesome. But how do you configure new stuff? It's API or GUI. At some point, though, as we advance upwards, the network has to disappear, doesn't it? In the well, sense sure. I that don't, I don't care about the network. Yeah, I, I mean, I I think I have the sense eventually that the network is going to, especially in the data center, it's going to disappear. So, what if you look at what Kubernetes is doing with networking? Also, although container networking is a train train wreck of just enormous proportions. Don't get me started. (laughs) It's just a disaster. I do think eventually they'll get it right. They have to iterate over that. Uh, And when you're working in containers, you can't use the infrastructure to patch the mistakes of the 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 apps or the you know uh, they do it all in software. Like, have you looked into service meshes at all? This idea of things like Linkerd and um, Traffic and those types of service mesh products for containers. Oh, no, I haven't gone that far. Okay. I was playing with things like Docker, uh, where they would automatically map the container IP addresses into resolvable names and things like that. Mm. So it was like, "Mm, yeah, that makes sense. So all of a sudden, if only we would persuade developers to use this instead of encoding IP addresses in their code, the world would be a better place. Yes, I agree. But one of the things they're doing now is they're building out these things called service meshes. It's still new, which is effectively what they're doing is putting an app proxy. So you take a tool like Nginx or uh, one of the web servers, pick whichever one you are, turn it into an application proxy at layer seven, and then you run every single application request through it. So uh, sometimes they're called... That's what Docker is doing with Swarm. Yes. So these sidecar proxy... Oh, sorry, I'm not familiar with Swarm. But so the the sidecar proxy sits in front of the app container. So there's a container at the back that might be running a web server or a node instance or a Python instance or whatever. And when the app request comes in, it hits a proxy first and the proxy then decides whether to send it on to its container, its app container, or if the app container is down for some reason, it'll divert it off somewhere else. And that then gives you visibility because you see the app request it gives you network visibility because you're seeing traffic moving around the virtual ne- network, uh, the virtual network inside of the system, and um, it's like for every app container, there'll now be a, a network container that's doing networking functionality, albeit at layer seven of the of the model. Okay, sounds interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I was just getting into it. <laughs> I was just looking into it, trying to work it out, and going like, it just feels like the wheels being reinvented here. Uh, if you had yes. access to the physical network, we would use network taps or we'd use span ports or... Well, you see, the problem is that uh, if you want to keep the networking simple, then you shouldn't do too much in hardware because the moment you start doing weird things in hardware, you are back to complicated custom basics. Well, if you're in the cloud... If you're on Amazon, Amazon's never going to let you have access to its ASICs or its physical. Yeah, well, network. it doesn't have ASICs. 
on the physical network, it's they're running the simplest possible IP fabric because that's the only thing yes, uh, right. they, they they can get to work at that scale. Mm. Uh, interestingly, very probably, so everyone is guessing, uh, they do have A6, uh, well, FPGAs on the NICs. Uh, they least, bought a NIC company back in 2004. Uh, somebody well, at least a- Microsoft was talking about how they're doing that. So you see, you either do the, so everyone, as we know, go, went into the encapsulation mm. direction. So something over IP. Uh, and it's either what NSX is doing in software or what ACI is doing on the top of rack switches. And uh, the big guys don't want to do it on the top of rack switches because they know it doesn't scale. Uh, they don't want to do it in software because it's slow. And so what they did was they invested into building their own FPGA that, at least according to the high-level presentations, is doing the encapsulation, decapsulation of the overlay traffic. So it's still done in the server, but in hardware. So it's predictable performance, yada, yada, yada. And it scales much better than if you would do that on the top of rack switch. Yeah, so the story that I've heard or seen that Amazon talk about in their keynotes is that they have, uh, they bought a hardware a uh, chip maker who made Annapurna, it was, who makes uh, network acceleration chips. And they bought that company outright in 2004, and then they've been making their own NICs for servers ever since. Mm-hmm. And makes, makes perfect sense. Yes, and that's where the encapsulation occurs is in the NIC, or it's a hardware accelerated encapsulation. It's done in the software, but at hardware acceleration, which allows them to scale very high. And part of that chip now is that it's running 25 gig and 50 gig interfaces and so mm-hmm. the switches at the at the top of rack as i understand it is you know basically again a, an l3 router the simplest possible infrastructure exactly. yeah. yeah and so when you you're never going to get access though to write apis directly to and from those hardware acceleration so if you wanted to do uh, some companies are out there promoting the idea of doing tapping on the NIC. So if you want to get hybrid cloud visibility, and this is what some of the vendors talk about is, you know, we'll manage the hybrid cloud, but you just put our driver into the system so that we can capture all the data that's coming in and out of the server. But I don't think that will ever scale because if you're getting a server that's transmitting, I don't know, 500 megabits per second, and you're trying to pull flow data out of that in a ES instance in the cloud, I think you're going to have performance problems. You, it's not, and it's going to cost you a lot of money. Uh, it's not that bad. I actually asked that same uh, question. Was that uh, the titration guys? Because mm-hmm. they do the same thing. Yes. Uh, and they said, well, you know, the telemetry is, was it one or two or two to five? So, so, some reasonably small percentage of the overall traffic. Because the flows are usually not that short. And for every flow, you would just export, you know, a short record, and it wouldn't even be a single packet. You would pack them together, do smart things. So they were claiming that it's just a few percent overhead to get the visibility. So from the networking perspective, it's not that bad. It's just a question of how much the product is costing. Mm. But yeah, of course I had to ask that question. Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds, the thing is that struck me is that, you know, sure, okay, I'm going to put an ES instance in the cloud or I'm going to have a Linux 
uh, installation in the cloud. So if I just put this driver on now, I've got my network visibility just like I always have, but there's a price to running that. Where before the server price always had enough horsepower to do these things because most servers only run at 5 to 10% CPU anyway, in the cloud you're now paying for this. So when you well, run flows through a service mesh, like through a proxy before it gets to your, con you know, your uh, your container, or whether you run a, a NIC, you know, something on the on the network adapter where you capture packets or create NetFlow records or you know whatever it is that you do, you're actually paying for all of that one way or the other. Well, yeah, you are paying a few percent more for networking. You are paying a few percent more for CPU. Is it worth it? Depends on what you're doing. Mm. If you're streaming video, I don't know, maybe not. If you're processing credit cards, maybe yes. Yeah. I, I'm struggling to see how hybrid cloud's going to work. This idea of building one network out of public clouds and private clouds, I, I, I just don't see how you're going to map the two together. The functionality in a private cloud is so radically different from the public cloud. I know I'm jumping topics here, but... Um, well, see, this is where my idea of having a high-level recipe becomes really handy. Because if you have something like, I don't know, Terraform, and you have this application-level recipe saying, well, this is how I deploy my application, and Terraform has plugins for OpenStack and Amazon and vCenter, mm -hmm. then guess what? Problem solved. Well, as long as vCenter and, and you know, all those tools actually act well, correctly. As, 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 as long as you are using the least common denominator of the functionality of all the deployment environments you want to use, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's the challenge is because if I look at what's happening over on Google Compute and look at their networking and then compare it with what's happening at AWS and then you compare it with what's happening at Azure, there's almost, there's very little overlap of functionality. And trying to get something that's consistent across all of them, you actually lose just about all the advantage of being in a public cloud. Well, they all have subnets, they all have yeah. IP addresses, they all have some sort of uh, load balancer sitting in front of you. Mm -hmm. So if you're happy with that and you, you're willing to build on top of that your own stuff, whatever that stuff is, then I guess you can use all three. The moment, obviously, you start using uh, any one of the 700 other AWS services, yeah. you're locked into AWS. Well, everything's a lock-in, one way or the other. So, you know, it's everything you do is going to lock you into. You know, uh, I, I was in one of my recent YouTube videos. I talked about you know when you go out and buy a car. So let's say you buy a four-door family sedan. That's great for eighty percent of what you do because you know maybe taking the kids to school and going to the shops and you know doing the stuff that you want to do. But that you know once or twice a year you want to take a load of rubbish to the dump. Well, all of a sudden that four-door sedan isn't very good. You're locked into what you've bought. The challenge is that people just need to be aware of the lock-in. That's what I maintain. Uh, yeah. Plus, uh, there is a slight difference between being locked into a car versus being locked into a shitty network. Uh, well, you can always rent a car, I guess. Well, you can go and rent a truck. Yeah, and, you know? exactly. It's, it's a bit harder to rent a network when you need it. That's right, or rent the right network when you need it because it's not quite so easy to just use for a weekend or so. But you get my exactly. point, right? Everything's a lock-in. Every decision you make locks you into something. There's consequences to every decision. The challenge here is to try and say, you know, if I suddenly start using AWS load balancing or AWS's DNS because it's convenient, can you use AWS's DNS on GCP 
And Azure and my private cloud at exactly the same level of functionality that I can get in AWS because otherwise uh, no. I'm trading off. Well, uh, you could use it. I was using AWS DNS and I had my stuff all over the world. But, you know, you lose the functionality they have where they can probe whether the virtual machines are up and running and they integrate with the load balancers and all that cool stuff. Mm. And you so as long as you logging and want DNS service, that's cool. You want anything more, yeah, you're locked in. Do you worry about where the private cloud's going? Do you feel like it's a, it's a struggle? Uh, yes. It's really interesting. Uh, I'm getting totally divergent data points. Mm. On one hand, I was talking with someone who, yeah, admittedly, he is working for a uh, public cloud vendor. And he said, you know what, uh, when I hear about people moving from public to private cloud and how it's cheaper to be in the private cloud, uh, I don't think that they did the uh, cost analysis correctly because equipment is cheaper, yeah, no problem, but people are really expensive. And uh, then I was talking with someone who is probably running a slightly larger environment mm -hmm. and they were like, you know what, we think we did everything right and uh, with fully loaded cost of all the people we think we need to run our private cloud, it's still cheaper than uh, what we would be paying Amazon. And it's like ridiculously cheaper than mm. uh, what it would cost us to run NSX on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've heard different stories. I've heard people say that they saved like 80% by moving to the private cloud, building some private infrastructure in a colo. I've also heard other people say that they've got, they actually cost them more, but I I ultimately think the transition the ones that I've seen save the most money is the people who have when they moved to the cloud they developed cloud apps so they used automation to deploy and automation to operate mm -hmm. and all the logging mm -hmm. and the, all the analytics and you know all that sort of stuff and when they then moved back to the private cloud they'd already re-engineered all their apps into this new cost efficient model true so and because they were buying, uh, you know, you, you could get, I mean, the challenges of building a data center 20 years ago was, was building generators and diesel tanks and getting bandwidth to the site that you were at. And we've solved all that with colos. And you get a lot of benefits of the public cloud, not a lot, some of the benefits of the public cloud just by being in a colo facility because they handle all the power and the cooling and the administration of all of that. And really all you're responsible then for is a bunch of servers and some storage functionality, some networking functionality, and you can get a lot of bandwidth out of a colo because it's all brought in. And I do wonder if people are comparing the wrong thing. So if you're saying I've got a data center facility and I own two acres in such and such a place and it's got... You know, I've got two buildings there with diesel generators and cooling and redundant cooling and meet me rooms, you know, then yes, the cloud is going to be much cheaper when you move to it. But yeah. I think if you are in a colo and you start comparing a colo with a couple of Nutanix or Hyperflexes or VX, you know, VX rails, I think it's a different sum. I think it's much closer and, and you've got the people who are used to using the automation presented by GCP or Azure you know, you're scripting the interfaces, you're DevOpsing, your people are deploying apps into, then I actually think it makes more sense to be in a colo. 
Well, but as you said, the real trick is that it works for people who already moved into the cloud and then they optimized their cloud. Yes, well, they've uh, optimized their we, people. Yeah. They've stopped being in silos. They've stopped being networking storage. Uh, uh, I have a pet theory here. Let me throw it at you and see how you react. I believe that one of the weaknesses of the silo model is that we were encouraged to be experts. So, you know, I was a networking person and I wasn't allowed to do storage and I wasn't allowed to do servers. I wasn't allowed to do Linux or Windows, just networking. So I ended up just being going deeper and deeper and deeper into networking just to keep myself entertained. But being a networking expert actually isn't all that valuable because 80% of that expertise is never ever used, maybe more. And so the breakdown of the silo means you're actually focused on a much broader set of things and you're much more useful overall, but you're much less expert than you used to be. So we stop fiddling around with pointless knobs and twiddling, you know, stupid features. Well, I wouldn't necessarily agree that you have to be less of an expert but at least uh, occasionally you stop and ask yourself, why am I doing this stuff? And go and talk to other people. The, the problem I see with silos is that no one ever asked the stupid question, why are we doing this stuff? Mm. It was cargo cult. We were always doing things this way, don't ask. Yeah. Well, the silos, I think, were a reaction to the days when people didn't have the competency. So when, when mm -hmm. ITIL started to become fashionable in the late 90s, there was a lot of competency gaps. People were, could run HPUCs but didn't know networking or security or, you know, people who did, you know, it was very difficult to run a storage array in the late 90s. And you did actually have to be an expert or configuring a Cisco WAN was a full-time job just knowing how to roll out frame relay or atm interfaces but things are a lot simpler now and we don't actually have to have the level of niche not expert knowledge but niche knowledge that we used to have well i don't think those things are simpler it's just that the learning curve has moved from you know you had to learn to know a lot to get a few things done to you can learn, you can know very little to get a lot of things done. Mm. But when you hit that wall, things are probably even more complex than what they were. And I guess too that I sort of I feel that overlays like this this focus on overlay networking in the data center and in the WAN and in the campus really shifts a lot of the emphasis away from fiddling with the switches to to working to do useful work on the top. Um, so, uh, for example, uh, modern day devices, this is devices that are being just coming into the market now, have enough compute and storage to actually have a number of different images on them. So it's much easier to remote load or upgrade an iOS, an OS image on a box because you can have 10 of them sitting on the hard drive and you can institute a rollback if you need to. Whereas 20 years ago, I remember sitting there at four o'clock in the morning on a 4700 series router, taking the, the flash chips off to put them in something else to get an image on them. Uh, don't get me started on those experiences. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, we were all scarred by using the ZX Spectrum equivalents, but let's move on. Yeah, I know that uh, in the good old days, everyone was living on 64K of RAM and uh, 4 meg of flash and stuff like that. But, you know, 
we all had the same problems. The server people were also limited in the resources they had. Mm. Is it are overlays simpler because you can uh, have two iOS images on the box? I don't think so. Well, I think the thing is that the the devices are now themselves are so much simpler. So what used to be difficult ten years ago. One gigabit, ten gigabit, uh, booting iOS, you know, booting the OS image, plugging servers into them. That's a lot simpler than it used to be. I mean, okay, let's okay, let's say that we agree that trivial stuff is simpler today than it was in the past. And why was trivial stuff ever complex? Yes, and that's my point. And so now yeah. that that trivial, now that now that pointless things are now sorted or solved. Just to a lesser or great, you know, don't get me started on 25 gig Ethernet and the different SFPs and vendors who only insist on you buying their SFPs. And when you, if you have a Cisco switch and an EMC storage array, they won't work. They're not certified to work together because EMC says you have to have my SFPs and Cisco says you must have my. And then they're not compatible. Had that happen. Um, but let's pretend that that's generally a solved problem compared to where we were 10, 15 years ago. Now we've got the energy to look at overlays because some of the other stuff that we used to waste a lot of hours of the day on is now simplified and, well, more or less works, predictably. Agreed. And we're being more useful to the business. I mean, totally agree, but that's uh, where the whole IT has been going for the last 30 years, right? Well, yeah, you fix the things that are broken. It's like databases. Ten years ago, you could have one database. It was usually Oracle or um, there was a couple of others. I'm trying to think of what they were called. SQL Server. No, there was a Postgres, couple of Oracle uh, versus um, not SAP. There was another. One. Anyway, they were all commercial and they cost big money. And when you bought them, and nowadays you can. There's so many databases out there. It's like the, every week for a while there, there was a new database coming onto the market. We've got graph databases like Neo4j. We've got distributed databases like MongoDB or React or any of the other ones that we've got. Uh, and now you can basically choose a database that's exactly what, like even Hadoop is basically a database, a bit more than a database, but, you know, there's all these choices that we used to have, that we have now that we didn't used to have. Uh, and so now the idea of putting stuff into a database is trivial. Now the question is, how can I use the data that I'm building out? And that's what's happening to networking too, I think. Well, actually, the question is, uh, now that I have these different database technologies, because it's not just different products, it's totally different technologies and functionalities, uh, which one do, you, do I use? That's, yeah, exactly. And uh, how do I use it sensibly? Because using MongoDB or Redis is totally different from using MySQL. They're all free, but they do totally different things. And uh, there are people who understand the differences and know exactly how to use them. Mm. Uh, there are others. Same in networking. Yeah, competency. Uh, I believe that one of the biggest mistakes that enterprise IT has made is dumbing down. Vendors have been going out and telling enterprises, you can get rid of the headcount. You don't need to have people. We're, we're going to sell you this new shiny, and it doesn't need as many people to operate it. And so they get rid of their people and then find they don't have enough skill to operate the device and extract value from it. Do you agree with that in principle? Uh, you were reading my today's blog post, right? 
Uh, no, I've actually been talking about this one for many years. Actually, it's one of the ones that actually gets the biggest uh, I push. I had enough and uh, wrote about Dunning Kruger in IT. Oh yes, I call this the illusion of competency. Yeah, but it, it has an official name: is the Dunning Kruger syndrome. Uh, yeah, yes. Well, Dunning and Kruger are the psychotherapists who discovered it. They researched it and then proved it via yeah. a study. Well, they actually proved it, which is one of the yep. uh, oh straight from the abstract of the original paper. People tend to hold overly favorable views of their abilities in many social and intellectual domains. Mm. And then they quote someone else who did a previous work saying, it's one of the essential features of such incompetence that the person so afflicted is incapable of knowing that he is incompetent. That sounds like most IT managers I've worked with. And now guess what? It's inventor's best interest to keep this as status quo because these people are buying from them. Mm -hmm. They think they know it all and they think they're buying the right thing. Yeah. And, so they, yeah. and the vendors are encouraging this. And when these people figure out that, you know, things don't work, the vendor is there to help them buy the, ne the next software-defined product that will solve everything with intent-based whatever. Yeah, I just, I, it just concerns me that companies want to ditch their IT extensively. They just want to get rid of it. They feel like it's a problem and then they want to downsize it. But they never do that with accounting. They understand accounting. Anybody can understand accounting. No, know, no. Most, yes. I mean, they understand the value of accounting. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you have the cash coming in, you're not getting paid. That's easy to understand. Hmm. Let's pause the podcast for just a moment to remind you of our sponsor, Paceler, makers of the PRTG Network Monitor. Now, if you're remembering the free PRTG tool from many years ago, and it was this fun little thing that's useful, but not really for grown-ups, you have really lost track of Paceler. PRTG is this very serious, full-blown network monitoring solution that integrates with many different parts of your IT stack. When they came up on our radar ooh, a year or so ago and began talking to us about what they were doing, it's like, oh, wow, this is not the PRTG I remember at all. PRTG is many things. It offers a powerful alerting system. There are several different interfaces that you can use to access all of its data, including there's a web interface and a Windows native interface, iOS and Android. Uh, PRTG has a clustering option, and then they have application support for all different sorts of apps, like uh, Apache and Oracle, for instance. Uh, there's a map designer feature with over 300 different types of map objects. Uh, they got distributed monitoring with remote probes, really handy if you're in a WAN environment. Um, there's a SaaS option if you don't want to have to house PRTG internally. There's detailed reporting and more. It, it is, uh, again, a serious network monitoring system well worth adding to your bake-off list, and you can try out the unrestricted version free for 30 days. All right, this is PRTG. So how do you find them? If you just Google PRTG, they're right at the top of the list there. Or you can head to Paceler.com, P-A-E-S-S-L-E-R, Paceler.com. And now, back to the show. So where do you sit on the debate around software-defined campuses? Now, Cisco has come out with its software-defined campus. It looks pretty new to me. I don't think it's ready for use. Um, probably got a while to go. But do you think automating the campus is viable with an overlay network like they're proposing? Well, you see, there are a number of different challenges here. The first one is what problem are we trying to solve? If we think that we need address mobility, and uh, it's questionable, 
I mean, after all, iPads, iPhones, Androids, they all work pretty nice, uh, switching from Wi-Fi to 3G to hotspots to private networks. But assuming we want address mobility, uh, what's the best way to achieve it? And address mobility means either bridging or some sort of routing based on host addresses. So you need something along these lines. What I like about all this overlay stuff is that they finally got rid of bridging. Mm. So more or less everyone doing things right, yeah, they might have some remains of bridging because some crazy stuff still needs that. But they try to do more and more routing based on individual IP addresses, which is a good thing. Obviously, you can't put 50,000 or 100,000 host routes into the core switch because, you know, its mind would be blown. So you need overlay to isolate the core switch from the impact of too many endpoints. And then you need some control plane, which can be EVPN or Lisp. And don't get me started on Lisp. Mm. Uh, so you need something. So the, at least we agree. Uh, we certainly agree on Lisp. I think it's... Uh, As I said, don't get me started. Yes. I, I find it extremely difficult to believe that that's a... Yes. Well, you need some scalable control plane that will allow you to do routing based on IP addresses. And because you want to use cheap switches, not that Cisco's campus switches would be too cheap, because you want to use cheaper switches, mm -hmm. uh, you need to cut down on the number of forwarding entries you put into each switch, which is why they claim Lisp is better than anything else. You could do the same thing with EVPN or whatever, but let's not go down that path. Yeah. So yeah, all that is nice and good. All that makes sense. Uh, how do you provision all this? Because this is all complex. I mean, just look at the configurations and it's like, oh my, can I have spanning tree, please? Because it was so simple. And so you have to put some sort of orchestration system on top of that. No problem with that. I like it. The only problem I have is that it's all GUI based. And yeah, gets back to your API. initial point about how do yeah. you sanitize, how do you sanity check that you're actually on the right track? Are you doing the right exactly. thing? Exactly. How mm. do you sanity check that the new department has the been answer, deployed? We probably correctly. don't. We probably put up with the same old status quo that we've been putting up with for years. Yeah. We're not quite getting it right. Oh, by the way, there is this. Oh, of course, Cisco has an answer. Mm. There's this network assurance engine. Oh, it only works with ACI, but it will work with other stuff. And uh, we've been sitting in the Cisco Live presentation and they were explaining how the network insurance engine, you know, validates that your intent has been implemented correctly. Mm -hmm. And you know what someone said? It wasn't me, honestly. Honest to God, it wasn't me. <laughs> he said, oh, so, so now you need another piece of software to validate that ACI doesn't have bugs. Uh, <laughs> that's, the network assurance engine is meant to be a verification product. Yeah, for what? Uh, well, the idea behind verification, as I understand, let me try and explain it and see if I can just, I do agree with the, the intent of what you just said, it's, and that's not exactly what it's trying to achieve. Um, 
the the idea of verification isn't just to work on ACI. It should work on everything. So the challenge that most networks have is you might have <coughs> ACI in one place and SD access in another, and in the future you'll have VIP teller in the SD WAN. And the question is going to be, in my opinion, what happens when um, you have have to calculate the end-to-end path across all of these dis- distributed SDN controllers? And what happens if you've got checkpoint firewalls in the middle or Juniper firewalls or Palo Altos? And what happens when there's load balancers in the path? Maybe you've got some F5s or some A10s and, you know, you've got all these other devices in there. Or what about inside of your container network? Um, and so what verification does is it gathers all of the data from the network and builds a mathematical model so that you can verify what's happening in the path. So not only does it map the network. That's uh, Veriflow. And that's what Network Assurance Engine's meant to be. It's meant to be another Veriflow uh, forward networks. Yeah, but you see, the the real problem I have with uh, more Network Assurance Engine than Veriflow, Veriflow has another set of problems. Uh, how do you define what your intent is? How do you tell this assurance engine what you actually want? And their answer to me, and maybe we got on uh, on the wrong foot or something, their answer was, well, we get the intent from how you configured ACI. Wouldn't that, does that mean they're reading ACI's configuration state? Yes. All right. And then they have a translator which brings that into the internal engine. Well, whatever. And that was what triggered, you know, the question. Okay. Mm. So my intent is defined in ACI, and now I need your assurance engine to verify that my intent is implemented correctly? Yeah, I do. I do. I think what's happening there is, uh, so I've talked to the forward networks people and the Veriflow people, and I'm sure you have too, right? Is that correct? Yeah, I did talk with Veriflow people, yeah. Yeah. So I've talked to the forward networks people, and um, they're trying to build uh, vendor-independent maps. And then what you can say is, if I'm trying to send a flow between these two points, what does it go through? What does it see? And they're discovering stuff because they can map the network. They actually model it mathematically. So they can also show you um, troubleshooting information because they know what path the packet was going at a given point in time. And as time builds up, they're building out the models to the point where they can actually say, you've got an asymmetric traffic flow here. Are you aware of that? Or mm-hmm. that type of thing. The that challenge I think sense. yeah, the challenge I think Cisco's got is that it's so broken up into little pieces, data center here, WAN over here, campus over here, that it doesn't have a way to bring them all together into one thing. It's not one network. It's dozens of little fiefdoms all doing different things. Mm -hmm. And I think network assurance makes sense from Cisco's point of view because it's much better for them to have another another product to sell on top of the other stuff because now they can just make more money. And so the business says, oh, what customers want is to know where the traffic's going to, if it's going to go across the WAN and then into the data center and across the campus to get to the other user, how do we map all of that together? And the answer is, well, none of the products they've got can do that because they're all business units or little independent companies that don't communicate. Like their enterprise strategies, not very joined up. So you have to have another tool that sits on top. Does that is that a logical argument to you? Well, that would make sense. So you see, these things always make sense in the scenario 
where you define what you want to have on one end, and then you have to use some other mechanisms to actually configure the boxes. It all came from, you know, the validation of programs ideas. So you know what the goal is, the high-level intent, if you wish, and then you go and you write your program, the low-level implementation, and then you can mathematically validate that your program actually does what your intent was. Makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Translated to networking, if I define my intent like... Uh, I want HTTP flows to go through here, and no SSH flows should ever go between A and B. And then I go, and because I have to, I configure the boxes in my network manually, automatically, through SDN controller, doesn't matter. And then I think I'm done, and now I can use this validation engine to validate that my intent has been implemented correctly. Makes perfect sense. Mm, mm. Now, imagine that uh, instead of me telling the validation engine what my intent is, now I go and I reverse engineer the intent from how the boxes in the network have been configured. What's the value of that? So by bringing them all together, so uh, I did a bunch of research on this and went out and started understanding the mathematics behind formal verification. It's actually a a mathematical discipline that, as I understand it, came out of silicon chip design. So the idea mm -hmm. is that in a silicon chip, currents have to flow through various points, so diodes, transistors, you know, all that mm -hmm. sort of stuff. And th there are programming languages like Verilog, as I'm sure you're aware, that, um, that rely on verification. And anyway, so before you send a chip off to be manufactured, it's really valuable to have a mathematical model of all the possible paths in the chip to make sure that it's actually not going to be buggy. And so there's a whole branch of mathematics. They're taking that and applying that to networking. And so they can tell you that traffic's going through a firewall or through a load balancer. And yeah. by reading the configuration, it can say whether the traffic, what, you know, as the packet yeah. gets munged, it can translate the flow totally all the way through. I agree. Yeah. But you know what you said before? You define what you want the chip to do. And then... You design your silicon, and then you prove that your silicon works the way you defined it should work before mm -hmm. you start burning. Well, that's the, where the formal silicon. verification works today. They look at exactly. your existing networks, they read your configuration state, they run it through a translator, yeah, turn it into a meta language, and then do the analysis. your intent. Mm. And if you define your intent externally... And then you say, now validate that my network meets this intent. I'm perfectly fine with that. There's value to that. But if you say, no, 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 I will grab the intent from the way the network is configured. And then I will validate that the network that has been configured with this intent is actually implementing this intent. Mm. Well, they're this not capturing intent. It looks like bug tracking to me. <laughs> it is. <laughs> well, I think the way formal verification is at the moment is that it's literally a layer that sits, it's like a continuous integration. Once you've deployed the network, now I need to look at what the current state of the network is. And I can start to find common bugs or common mistakes or common errors. Mm -hmm. It's not an intent execution engine. If you look at the intent-based networking principle, I think it's, 
I do think it's very inspirational at this moment. What I mean by inspirational is it's still emerging. And companies like Abstra and what Cisco's doing around with its SD access is trying to say, we know that most of you do this same thing over and over. So this comes right the way back to our initial discussion around factories. We know that if you want to configure a VLAN, that these are the, the standard steps that everybody does. So we're just going to produce a machine that configures VLANs and then strap a GUI interface on top of it and do it for you. I think Abstra's capability to understand intent is far more advanced than what Cisco's embraced. Cisco's coming from behind here and needs to catch up. That's not a bad thing. It's just that Cisco's a big company. It takes longer for them to work up to maximum speed. But once the battleship starts to grind, it's unstoppable. So so I think intent-based networking is still very early, but there are people doing intent-based things. I don't think I don't see ACI as an intent-based system personally or NSX. They're very deliberate. They use aspects of promise theory, but they don't um, take the concept of do what I do what I ask. They're much more about do what I do. Well, totally disagree. Mm. Because, you know, we are now in this intent hype. Mm -hmm. And it's impossible to define what intent-based networking is because there is no good definition. Never will be. But let's let's semi-agree that intent means I tell the network what should be implemented, not how it should be implemented, okay? Agree with that? Yes, I do, yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, I'm not now, arguing with you, so that's agreement. When, okay. <laughs> so when you, configure, when you configure OSPF on the box, do you tell the box how to run OSPF? Do you tell the box how to send packets? Do you tell the box how to get the information? Do you tell the box how to compute the best path? You tell the uh, box what to do. You tell the box, run an OSPF for me, please. So we've been doing intent-based networking forever because we never told the boxes how to do things. We always told the boxes what to do. It was just at a very low level of intent. It was very granular intent, if you wish. But we never ever told the boxes how to do things. That's why we have all these nerd knobs because we can't tell the boxes how to do things. <laughs> I think I think I think the I think you're redacting the argument down to something that's too simplistic. Uh, no, we didn't tell OSPF what algorithm to run. We didn't have a choice of algorithms to run. So we our intent was always what we did was we took our network and turned our intent into OSPF. So we required an engineer to speak, to take the business intent and translate it into what OSPF could deliver or an access list or a VLAN. Oh, well, uh, as so, I said, our intent was at a very low level of abstraction. So most people do not build full mesh networks like the internet is, when they build a private WAN, they build a point-to-point -point because that's the only one that works. Because the only way to take the business intent, connect my branches to my head office, and you look at OSPF and you realize that if you put loops in the OSPF, it's probably going to blow up and die. So I don't give it the ability to be self-configuring or to have great intent because it's not stable and reliable enough. So my intent is taken away because I always have to redo my, my design is always limited by what the capability of my boxes are. Now, intent-based networking that we see emerging now is able to say, if I was to do this fancier configuration or more complex configuration or use different technologies like SD-WAN, 
not necessarily intent, but they're heading down that direction. You look at what VeloCloud's doing, um, and they're configuring the edge device to load balance across multiple parts, but they're not using they're not limited by OSPF or the limitations of IPSEC with NHRP or DMVPN. Uh, and they're able to much more encapsulate a much more complex level of intent than the simplistic intent that you might get out of a, an autonomous protocol. Well, disagree, because in mm. the end, uh, they still have to use... Uh, oh, you see, now that you went down the SD-WAN path, <laughs> it really is uh, a lot of duct tape behind the scenes. Oh, yeah. Because they have to do everything we have been doing. It's just that now uh, the duct tape has stronger glue and it's of the right size, so there is no overlap and no nasty-looking corners and things like that. But functionally, if you take a look at what any SD-WAN solution is doing, it's exactly the same thing as DMVPN with PFR and IPSLA. Mm-hmm. Except that nobody could get that to work. That's why Cisco. Oh yeah, of course. Right, uh, I it said, didn't work. You no, know, the glue is better now, and yeah. uh, the duct well, tape. I think there's a few things. I think the, white. <laughs> I think I think you're doing. I, I'll take you to task on that because there's some key aspects of SD WAN. Yes, it is just DMVPN. Yes, it's PFR. Yes, it's you know NHRP. It's all those things brought together, but it's also. Modern hardware, so x86s with Ethernet interfaces, so there's lots of CPU power to do stuff that we could never do in, like even Cisco's routers of today are are vastly underpowered compared to what some of the SD-WAN devices are putting out. They're using cloud platforms for zero-touch provisioning, so when you receive most of the SD-WANs, you pick them up, you plug them into an internet connection, and they automatically register uh, via the internet, and they're ready to go because the configuration gets downloaded. Um, yeah, so just because someone got that right doesn't make it revolutionary. It's just made right. No, I didn't claim it to be revolutionary. I'm saying... Yeah, I know you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Resist. But, uh, and then now what we're seeing is, uh, so if you look at what Riverbed's doing, sorry, if you look at what Silverpeak's doing, they're now uh, merging their WAN acceleration technologies into the SD-WAN capabilities and doing some pretty smart stuff with how they can do, tri- like, uh, I think their one headline trick, if you like, is being able to send the same packet down multiple links at the same time and then receive it at the other end. And so that means you can do voice. If you think that crossing voice is actually a relevant thing to do, I generally don't, but hey, if you do, you can actually send the the voice packet down two or three links at the same time and then you're much more likely to get it at the other end. Uh, so that's clever. And that's not something that you can do at DMVPN. Right. And that's how exactly different from multi-link PPP with fragments? <laughs> yeah, but you're, with fragmentation, all you were doing was doing packet spray across multiple links. Well, you were doing fragment spraying, but yeah, yes. I, 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 I see what you're saying. Yes, yeah. you're not doing the transmitting the same packet down all the links at the same time to make sure that it gets the other. Now, admittedly, you can only do 10 or 20% of the traffic. 10 to 20 percent of the bandwidth to do that. Uh, I Otherwise, don't want to know how much state they need to keep to make this happen. Yep. Well, they're also doing predictive analytics. I mean, Silverpeak's got some really smart math in there. Well, that's a different thing. But then you go and look at what Riverbed's doing, and they're actually putting a branch in a box. So they now have the Wi-Fi snapped into the SD-WAN edge, and then they've connect the SD-WAN device with cloud services. So you can now say, our cloud platform knows all of the IP addresses associated with Office 365. So you can just get a rule and say, uh, 
give everybody in this branch access to Office 365 if they're logged into the NT Active Directory domain. Click, and that rule goes out to everything on the network. That is an intent-based functionality that's quite powerful, I think. And I think most of the SD-WAN companies are heading in that direction. Uh, that's the right level of abstraction. Mm. It has nothing to do with intent-based whatever. I mean, this is as intent-based as configuring OSPF was intent-based. It's just the right level of abstraction. Instead of you manually going to uh, Microsoft's website and figuring out where they have the list of prefixes that belong to them, and you manually configuring echoes or automating their, that or whatever, now you are working at the right abstraction layer where you just say Office 365 and the system in the background does exactly the same thing that you would be doing which is collect those addresses and translate them into ACL and push them down into the boxes because in the end, mm -hmm. it's ACLs. Yes, it is. But, oh, but sometimes it's, it's, more, right than, no, sometimes it's more than ACLs. Sometimes they're actually filtering on SSL certificates or you know something in the first 160 yeah, bytes. It's, sometimes yeah. it's a bit more than just an ACL, which again is something that routers have never been able to do so, or that OSPF well, was never able to do. true. There is this crazy thing where you can, I think, configure some weird ACLs that match on any bit in Cisco iOS. Yeah, uh, there was a feature. I can't remember it, but it never sort of... Yeah, worked. exactly. But let's not go down that it, path. It never sort of worked the way it was because it needed that cloud information to say, we used to be able to do access lists based on detecting situations traffic. I can't think of the actual title that it had. Now, that was fine until Citrix traffic packet formats changed, and then all of a sudden the feature wasn't in use anymore. And But if you want to get – so so what these, these SD-WAN companies are doing is they're saying, well, if you want to just access Office 365, we'll work out all the places that Office 365 are. Or if you want to block Facebook – We'll work out all the things that need blocking. Now, whether that's an SSL certificate or whether that's a layer three address or whether that's a layer four ACL, who cares? They're, block they're providing that data service to you. And actually, that's quite valuable to me because oh, it honest, is. You know, my intent <laughs> is access Office 365. Do I care if it's done with an ACL or little, little um, rat-sized Muppets cares? going yes, no? <laughs> I don't. I just want it to work. Well, but we're back to what I said previously. Cisco works done right. Yes. Well, I do. I am. I am sort of inspired by this focus for usability um, amongst yeah, the SD-WAN players. These products are wonderful, but let's just admit that it's the old things done right. Yeah. No. I sorry. I did agree with you. I did say yes, but but I said I think there's more to it than just basics. I think the old products we got the basic principles right, but they weren't. Um, we couldn't amp up the the operational status to the point that we need. And and this comes back to my point about Python and Ansible. This is why I don't think Python and Ansible are the only answer. I think they're just going to be no, a part of the world. Mm. Uh, you know, Russ White had this great, great blog post, and he said, well, there are two types of people. People who think that network is their strategic infrastructure. Mm-hmm and people who think that network is overhead. For people who think that network is overhead, yes, they should definitely go down the uh, layers of abstraction, hyperconvergence, GUI-based intent, whatever. They don't want to see the network. For people who think that network is 
a strategic infrastructure that they want to own and not be pulled around by vendors who launch a market architecture every three years, they might be interested in some level of customizable automation. Whether it's Cisco NSO or Ansible or Puppet or Chef or Python or your own solution, and I know people who build their own solutions from scratch because there was nothing available, mm -hmm. who cares? I, I don't care. I'm just saying, tech, like, I'm taking a long view, um, say 10, 20 years down the track. Do you think people will be hard coding P Python scripts for all of their automation, or are they more likely to be using a range of platforms from be it open source, but more likely commercial vendors, and then using some Python to weld them together for bits and pieces? Well, anyone who is reasonably smart is not going to reinvent the wheel. No, wheels don't need reinventing. But, yeah, but you know, it's uh, either the Unix way or the, and I don't want to pick on Cisco, but let's say the Cisco works way. Well, Cisco is 60 to 70% of the market. You can't. Or we could it. say Solar Winds way or whatever you mm, wish. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So either you have this small components and you figure out which components are the right components for what you need, and then you add some glue around them, and you can reorder them in any way you wish, and you start building your own components, and then you open source your components, and other people fix that, and so on and so on. Or you buy a monolithic black box product that has some API today, so you can modify some of its behavior. But still, you know, you can't make a tank out of a car if you bought a car. Whereas if you bought a bunch of Lego bricks, you can build anything out of the Lego bricks. Yeah, but it won't be something that's been built properly. Well, it depends on whether like a, you want to invest into vendor engineers or, or your yeah. own engineers. And this is some of the things, like if you build something out of Lego blocks and you drop it on the floor, it falls apart and smashes into little bits. Whereas if you uh, buy something that's custom built, it's usually tougher, it's more likely to work for longer, it's more stable. Okay, more you can 3D print your Lego bricks so that they <laughs> fit together properly. Don't get no, I mean, started. this is the problem is that I, over the years, I've seen people write these enormous scripts in Pearl uh, that do amazing things and they just don't sustain. Like, even the vendors have struggled to produce software that does network operations until very recently. Because it just wasn't sustainable. The, now, I have to assume that at some level, it was just not possible to write software to manage networks until software development got overhauled. Things like CICD and automation and the power of Python and the, the frameworks like Ansible that drove, you know, a lot of the work that we just wasted our effort along, like Tickle has been well, solved with uh, things like Yang and GRPC and GNMS NMS and all that sort of stuff, That things that we just didn't have for the last 20 years. Well, let's just put it this way. All this new stuff that we have mm. brought us out of the age of assembly language into the age of Python. Mm. Okay, so we can work faster. However, the question always was, do you see your network and the automation of your network as something that is strategic to your company? And if you said yes, and you invested into a team of engineers who would work on this full-time and be properly funded and you know, supported by the management, then you got results. Only a few service providers managed to pull this off, and no one else could. 
And the vendors can't pull this off because every network is unique. They're not unique, though. They're always bit. This is what. And this is the great thing. Yeah, about I know they all run IP. Yeah, they're all configured. The they're all IP. It all runs Ethernet. They all use the same OSPF yeah, protocols. They use the same. And still, uh, everybody uses the same cables. Microfix. They will be different for no. That's like saying everybody's car is unique because everybody drives it differently and goes to different places. It's exactly the same. No, car. it's like saying everyone's haircut is unique. <laughs> it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Not at all. Well, not with my hair length <laughs> or hair density. Uh, anyway, you know, I'm joking that uh, network automation software has the same problem as SAP. SAP is as complex as it is because it has to support all the stupidities that people think are crucial for their business. And in the end, everyone is writing invoices and paying salaries and tracking non-paying customers. But everyone is doing it differently. So, you know, you have this humongous blob of complexity that you can customize, uh, you know, for the next 100 years uh, to do exactly what you think it should, should be done. And the only ones that uh, I'm aware of that manage to replicate that feat with network automation is uh, Cisco's NSO. Yeah, and, but, and keep in mind that NSOs had 15 years to mature. Yeah. They, they were toiling in the wilderness for a decade before they turned yeah, into the light. But, you know, uh, the That's same principle. I, you yeah. buy the product, you still don't have anything. You still have to uh, customize the product to your needs. Well, you get something out of the box, you know, the basic well, Hello World services, but you want to... Yes, I agree. But I think the key thing about service? it is... Yeah, I agree with you. I, I do agree that NSO is the real deal. And it's a shame it's been limited to service providers, in my opinion, although I hear... It's not. That you can they, buy it. You, <laughs> if you I, have enough money, you can buy it. I've actually heard that the tail F business unit, that's the NSO business, is now actually an autonomous unit, and it's actually going to be a universal product, perhaps across all of Cisco's products, which would be interesting because then in having instead of having all these, you know, hodgepodge of business unit-specific software products that they all try and flog off, there may actually be something that brings it all together. And I also think the other thing about NSO is, like I said, it's also had 15 years to mature and become stable and to learn lessons and to iterate, like be out there in real networks and learn hard lessons. Mm-hmm. Whereas these other products that we're seeing emerge now, all of the new stuff that's all intent-based, and this is not just from Cisco, but all the vendors, right? Contrail's had to change direction over at Juniper. They're now refocusing Contrail back on the enterprise onto the hybrid cloud. Uh, these people have all got lessons to learn to build them, and they're going to take years to get those right. I, I'm i still a big fan of saying, um, but at the same time, there is business value to be made from implementing these half-baked solutions. So don't not buy them just because they're not ready. I agree they're not ready. Most of the SD-WAN solutions are probably about 40% complete, feature complete from where they'll be in a few years' time. But you can actually save 50%, 60% off your WAN budget by deploying what you have today now because they actually do work. Well, let's put it this way. You could have got that done 10 years ago if you just wanted to do it. I mean, there were years when my friends working for a system integrator were complaining that all they're doing is building tunnels. Mm-hmm. 
So there were years when uh, every single customer of that system integrator wanted to have the same thing, IPsec tunnels over the internet to either backup or take over their MPLS WAN. So SD-WAN is nothing new. People have been doing this stuff for ages. It's, as I said, now it's better duct tape. Looks nicer, better GUI, all properly integrated. Everything works together. No rough edges, no missing pieces, uh, no hidden holes where you might need some glue that you can't get, things like that. Yes, I do feel like um, SDN controllers are... SDN generally, and there's a lot of SDN washing, whatever you want to say about software-defined, it is driving vendors to consider the solution instead of the device. So we've stopped thinking about the devices, like how many ports and how many packets per second go through a device. And what we're now talking about is end-to-end. I think there's a real transition there where everybody's focused on the user to the server wherever the server may be and wherever the user is, it's a real focus on this end-to-end part of the experience, not the on the layer 4 to layer 7 experience rather than the layer 3 hop-by-hop experience. Mm, if only you were right. <laughs> I mean, it all comes down to packets, hop-by-hopping across the well, network. Uh, in the end, when you get a visit from the account team, what do they want to talk about? Uh, well, in, well, this is where Cisco's I, – I do think that this licensing stuff that Cisco's doing, much as though I think they're failing in the execution, I think that this licensing, this software subscription model may – for all the bad that it's going to bring us, there's some light there that they are actually going to have to deliver a product that works or customers just won't sign up again. Okay. It's possible. I want to be an optimist, cynically optimistic. How's that? Okay, you're younger than I am. You can still be that. (laughs) (laughs) Ivan, what a pleasure it's been to talk to you today. Likewise. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Why don't you tell people where they can find you on the internet? Well, you can always start at ibspace.net or you can go to blog.ibspace.net or you can uh, browse on ibspace.net and explore all the webinars and online courses. And if you're interested in automation, there is tons of new stuff coming out every month as well as in the data center space. Uh, I also have a podcast. It's called Soft Gone Wild. Go to podcast.ibspace.net and explore. And if you really want to find me on Twitter, I'm always at iOS Hints. And thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, I'm Greg Farrow. If you'd like to follow my latest uh, foray into content, I've been banging away on my YouTube channel. If you just search for Packet Pushers, you'll be able to find and subscribe to our channel and listen to uh, me YouTubing my way through presentations and dialogue roughly similar to what we've talked about here today, unfortunately without any of the whippy, witty repartee that Mr. Pepunyak brings to the industry. Thanks very much for listening. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog. Now, our community blog, by the way, you can contribute. If you go to packetpushes.net slash archive, you can find a big list of all of our latest news articles where we've written. You can also follow us on Twitter as at Packet Pushes. You can find us on LinkedIn. We're even on Facebook for those of you who are left there if you haven't... 
be better if you just all deleted it, but that's just me. And rate us on Apple Podcasts. That's actually a big favor. If you actually have some time, if you could go onto Apple Podcasts and give us a a good rating, that would be really helpful to uh, keep us going because that's what uh, gets us the new listeners. And last but not least, remember that too much technology would never be enough.